يقول الله جل وعلا في كتابه الكريم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصدق الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم وشر الأمور محتثاتها وكل محتثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار أعاذنا الله وإياكم منها أجمعين أما بعد Dear brothers and sisters, it was five years after Allah revealed the Qur'an to the heart of the Blessed Prophet And the Prophet as always was active in calling his people to recognize the oneness of Allah and to worship Allah alone and to shun false gods and idols and to shun immorality. He and his companions endured patiently the harms and the abuse and the denigration of his idol-worshipping people. They faced with patience the cruelty and the persecution that continued unabated. And as time went on, life became more and more intolerable for the weakest among the Muslim community. And they began to think what they're going to do and how much longer can we take this persecution. And just as things were reaching a critical mass, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet Surah Al-Zumar. And in this chapter, Allah Ta'ala gave the ishara, gave the indication in the direction that the weak among the community should take. And in that chapter, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala revealed, saying to His beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اِتَّقُوا رَبَّكُمْ لِلَّذِينَ أَحْسَنُوا فِي هَذِهِ الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً وَأَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةً he says, Say, O my servants who have believed, be mindful of your Lord, fear your Lord. For those who do good in the world is goodness. And the earth of Allah is spacious. Indeed, the patient will be given their reward without measure. And soon after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet وسلم, to say to his companions among the mustada'afeen, the weakest among them, disperse in the land. Disperse. And they said, Ya Rasulullah, where are we going to go? And he turned and pointed with his blessed hand towards the west. And he said, Hunalik, over there, pointing towards the west. And west in that place is pointing to Ardu Habasha, the lands of Abyssinia. He told them, Go, if you were to depart to the lands of Abyssinia, 
you would find a king under whose rule no one is oppressed. It is a land of truth. Stay there until Allah wills relief for you from what you endure. This was the isharat, the indication. And the instruction for those weak among the community to make their way a two-day journey across the sea to go to Ardu Habasha, the lands of Abyssinia. Now look at how the Prophet ﷺ describes the lands of Abyssinia. This was a Christian nation. And he says about this nation that it is a nation concerned with justice. He said, it is a place under whose rule, a king or emperor under whose rule, no one is oppressed. It's a land of truth. Indeed, some of our ulama have said, Allahu yansuru dawlat al-adila wa in kanat kafira. Wala yansuru dawlat al-dhalima walaw kanat mu'mina. Some of the scholars say that indeed Allah will aid a just and fair nation, even if that nation is kafira, a disbelieving nation. And Allah will not help an oppressive nation, even if it's a nation of believers. So the first batch of these weak among the Muslims made the first hijrah ever in the history of Islam, the hijrah to the lands of Abyssinia. And you have to understand the significance of this. These were a tribal people connected to their lands and their tribes and their clans and their families. And they were uprooting themselves entirely to go to this foreign land with different customs, a different language, away from their people. It's not like today, where you pack up and leave and go somewhere halfway around the world, but you have the internet, you have modern banking, you have a phone, you have a way to connect to your family back home. There's no internet, there's no banking system, there's no post office even. They uprooted themselves, leaving everything behind. So imagine how hard it was for them to leave under those circumstances. And imagine the difficulty of them uprooting themselves to go away and be away from their beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now the Muslims, this small group went to Abyssinia and they found a warm welcome. But they would soon find a threat of expulsion, of deportation. And we find this story in the seerah and it's told to us by Sayyidah Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha. She tells us this story about how they went to Abyssinia and what they encountered. And we want to reflect on this story and the lessons it gives for us today in this current environment as Muslim minorities. She says radiallahu ta'ala anha, when we landed in Abyssinia, we were treated very hospitably. The emperor of Abyssinia, the Najashi, he granted us security and freedom. In fact, she said, we did not even hear one word of ridicule against us from anyone. No one's making fun of them, no one's attacking them, no one's even saying anything mean and disrespectful. She says, but then the Quraysh heard about our status there and they plotted against us and they sent against us two strong men. We know the name of one of these men, we don't know the name of the other. The first of these two men sent to get them deported was Amr bin As, who was yet to be a Muslim. 
Yet he was sent along with another person to go to Abyssinia and use his diplomatic experience to get the emperor to deport the Muslims sent back to Mecca in chains for having left their homeland. So she says that soon they came and they arrived, she said, with many gifts. And they were giving these gifts to the different ministers and dignitaries and officials, giving all of them these gifts. And we know the intention behind the gifts. It was to bribe them, or you could say it was lobbying them for influence. And they said to these individuals, Amr bin Al says, we have among you a group from ourselves, rebels, people who have gone against the ways of our forefathers. And we want to take them back. And we want you to support us in this cause. And we will give the Najashi his gifts. So please remember our gifts to you. They're hinting that they want their help to get the Najashi to deport the Muslims from Abyssinia. So the next day, they get an audience in front of the emperor of Abyssinia, the Najashi. And Amr bin Aus says to him in his court, he says, some foolish youth, Sufaha, from amongst our people are in your land. And they have invented this new religion. They've left our religion and they haven't embraced yours, Christianity. And, their lead, and the leaders among us have sent us to you so we can get you to hand these foolish people over to us. And then they gave the Najashi lots of gifts. But what did the Prophet ﷺ say about the Najashi? He said, in that land is a just king in whose kingdom no one is wronged. So the Najashi was not about to just hand them over like that without investigating the matter. So what did he do? The hadith of Umm Salama, she tells us that the ministers of the Najashi were encouraging him to deport the small Muslim community there. Their hands have been greased with the bribes. So they were encouraging that. But the Najashi said, no, I can't hand them back after they have chosen my land. They've chosen me over all other lands that could have been chosen. And they asked for my protection. The very least I can do is listen to their side of the story. It's the very least you can do when people are talking. You listen to the other side. And that's what Najashi did. So they called for the Muslims to go to the court of the Najashi. Who is representing the Muslims? The Amir of the group, the leader, the spokesman for the group of Muslims in Abyssinia at this time <coughs> was Sayyiduna Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, he comes to the palace and is asked to explain why they migrated there and why they have opposed their people. And the Muslims became very worried about what's going to come of this. Because if things go the wrong way, they're going to be up in chains, put onto a boat, and shipped back to Mecca. And God knows what they're going to face under those circumstances. So the Muslims are worried. And Ja'far, being the leader, he says what a leader should always say in this situation. He said, we will speak the truth and only say what the Prophet ﷺ told us to say. They're not going to say something false and against Islam just to be warmly welcomed. 
truth was the most important thing. So they arrived at the palace and they found the Najashi surrounded by his ministers. And you have on one side Amr bin As and his companion. And on the other side you have now Ja'far and some of the Muslims with him. Now Amr and his companion, they go into the inner part first. And as they go inside, they follow the protocol. What's the protocol? The protocol was to bow to the king. To bow to the king. And so they bow to the king. And as it's time for Ja'far to enter, Ja'far walks in with his head held high. He's not even lowering his head a single inch. He's not bowing to the king. One of the ministers sees this and gets very upset. They say to him, how dare you walk in without prostrating to the Najashi? Understand, this was a very sensitive moment. The life and well-being of the Muslims was hanging in the balance. But this wasn't an issue of compromise, even though they were in a state of weakness. Ja'far says, our Prophet has told us that we can only prostrate to our Lord and Creator. So the Najashi hears this and he says, tell us about this religion of yours. And why have you forsaken the religion of your people? And why haven't you become a Christian or a Jew? And so Sayyiduna Ja'far anhu gives a very detailed and eloquent response of which I'll paraphrase slightly. Speaking in this very sensitive moment where their life is hanging in the balance, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, we used to be a nation steeped in jahiliyyah, in ignorance, and we would worship idols, we would eat carrion, meita, animals that are not killed properly, we would engage in all sorts of degeneracy and immorality, we would break the ties of kinship, we would treat our neighbors in contempt, the strong among us would devour the weak. And we remained in this state until Allah sent us a messenger. He says, this messenger was known to us, recognized from our community. We know his household, we know his lineage, and we know his truthfulness and that he has never spoken a single lie in his life. We know him. And he invited us to believe in the oneness of Allah to worship Allah alone, to leave aside idol worship. He told us to abandon the ways of our forefathers, to leave the worship of stones and statues. He commanded us to be upright, to speak the truth, to fulfill our promises, to keep our family ties. He told us to be good to our neighbors, and He commanded us to avoid all evils. So we believed in Him. We believed in Him, and we followed Him, but our people opposed us. They showed hatred towards us. They persecuted us. They tortured us. They punished us and tried to force us back into idol worship. They were unjust to us and they made our lives utterly miserable. And they prevented us being who we want to be. So when they did this, Jafar said, we migrated to your lands. We came to your lands. And we chose you above all other rulers. And we wish to come under your generosity and your hospitality. And we put our trust in you that we will not be shown any injustice in your land. This was the eloquent response of Ja'far radiallahu anhu. 
The Najashi then asked the Muslims, do you have any scripture, any wahi, any revelation? And it was at this point that Sayyidina Jafar recited and shows very wisely what to recite of the Qur'an. He recited Surah Maryam, the chapter in the Qur'an that details the story of Mary and Jesus Christ, the story of the mother of Sayyidina Isa and Isa. He recites this chapter, and even though the ministers and others did not understand Arabic, as they're hearing it, they begin to weep. And we understand from the story that the meanings of this chapter were translated to the Najashi. And he was quite moved hearing the meanings of the Quran in Surah Maryam. And he says, I swear to God, this recitation and the messages of Moses and Jesus have come from the same fountain. And then he looked at Amr bin As, and he said to him, go away from me. I will never hand these people over to you. Don't even think about it. But it was not done. Amr bin As was walking away and he told his companion, don't worry about this. I have one more trick up my sleeve. So the next day, Amr bin As goes to the Najashi. He gets an audience in front of the emperor and he says to the Najashi, you know these Muslims, they say something very blasphemous about Jesus Christ. The Najashi is now alarmed. What do you mean? So he sent forth a messenger to bring Ja'far and the Muslims again. And he wanted to hear his side of the story. So he says, what's this I hear that you say blasphemous things about Jesus Christ? And at this moment, Ja'far radiallahu anhu said to the Muslims who were also scared again. He said again, we will only say what the Prophet told us to say. We're not going to change the reality that Jesus is the servant and messenger of Allah. We're not going to add anything more to that. That is the truth. So when he's in front of the Najashi, he says this to him. And Najashi understood. He says, you mean to say that you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He says, by God, what you have just said does not exceed what Jesus Christ said by this much of a branch. And Najashi then makes the final decision and he turns to Amr and his companion and says, Be gone and take all your gifts with you while you're at it. I don't have any need for them. So he turns Amr away, returns the gifts and sends him packing. And they go back to Mecca defeated, prevented from taking the Muslims by force back to Mecca. And so dear brothers and sisters, there's more to this story. It wasn't, it didn't end with this. But we see that with this firmness on the truth and not watering down the teachings of Islam, Sayyiduna Jafar anhu was able to respond beautifully to the Najashi and he was able to secure a safe stay for the Muslims in the lands of Abyssinia. And he would remain and look after the interest of his fellow Muslims until finally reuniting with the Prophet The trip from Mecca to Abyssinia was a two-day journey, by land and by boat. Most of the Muslims in Abyssinia remained for almost a decade. Imagine almost 10 years you are in a foreign land with no reliable means of communication. 10 years. 
So they left in the fifth year after Revelation. And this was this, they, they left in the fifth as well as the sixth year after the mission of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ would then make Hijrah to Medina a few years later, and they remained in Abyssinia until even after the Battle of Badr and Uhud. They only returned when the Prophet ﷺ sent a letter to Jafar after the Battle of Khandaq. So it took a while for them to get back. But we see in Jafar the model of leadership, the model of how we have to be as Muslims living as religious minorities. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to inspire us with that kind of courage and that integrity to principles. May Allah Ta'ala be pleased with Sayyidina Ja'far and all of the Muhajirun and all of the Ansar and all of the companions who transmitted this deen to us and showed us what it means to stand true to our principles. Ameen. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa afturu salati wa atamu taslimi ala Sayyidina Muhammadin al-Sadiq al-Ameen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man astanna bi sunnatihi ila yawm al-deen wa ba'd Dear brothers and sisters, let us reflect on this story and what it means for us right here and right now. Many people have compared the Muslim presence in North America to the Muslim presence in Abyssinia. And it is true that the Muslim presence in Abyssinia was that of a religious minority in a Christian majority nation. But there are several differences between the context of the Muslims in Abyssinia and the context of Muslims in North America as a religious minority. Abyssinia, Ardu Habasha, was officially Christian. But there is no official religion in the U.S. that citizens must adopt. And though it is true that America is more or less a Christian majority nation, that has been steadily eroding for the past 70 or more years. So in place of religion in North America, we have many other things that have replaced it. In place of religion in North America, we have societal programming, we have peer pressure coming from mass media, from movies, from public ed education, and from academia. And the societal thrust is not towards Christianity, as it was in Abyssinia. The societal thrust in North America today is towards what I see as three things. Postmodernism and how we look at truth. Number two, a thrust towards moralistic, therapeutic deism that I will explain. And number three, a thrust towards consumerist escapism. Those are the three thrusts within society, not towards Christianity, but towards these three things. So what I mean is that instead of us being in a society that is dominated by a Christian ethos, America is rapidly entering a post-Christian phase where the dominant religion, if we can call it that, consists of these three things I just mentioned to you. Postmodernism, moralistic, therapeutic deism, and consumerist escapism.
What are these three things? What are these three things that have replaced and crowded out religion in America? And what does that mean for us as religious minorities in North America? Postmodernism is, simply put, it is the idea that truth is relative, that there is no actual truth with a capital T. It's more a question of power than any objective truth. So you have your truth and I have my truth and they're all competing claims and quests for power. No one's really right, no one's really wrong. Anyone who says they're right, they're just after power. The second thing that informs the ethos in North America crowding out religion is what some call moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now that's a mouthful, but it's quite obvious what it is when you look at what each of these terms mean. It is the dominant belief of society at large. It is the idea that yes, God exists. There's a God who created the world. And God wants people to be good and nice to each other. And the central goal of life is to just be happy and feel good about yourself. That's it. And God does not need to be involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. The idea of God as like a vending machine with ayyadu billah. You don't need it until you need it. That's therapeutic, moralistic deism. And lastly, it is the belief that ultimately, at the end of the day, good people go to heaven and good is defined by popular culture. It's not defined by the moral imperatives of either the Bible or the Quran in this society. It's defined by whatever is in popular culture and whatever society deems as good right now, which might change in 20 years or 15 years. And this means tolerating behavior that the Bible and the Quran call sins because these things are now seen as good while calling behaviors that are sinful good and calling things that are good bad or intolerant or hateful and so on. It's an inversion of moral values. It's the idea of religion as therapy, as something to boost your self-esteem where God is out there somewhere, we don't really need Him until we do and then we hope to get a favor. That is moralistic therapeutic deism, reducing God to a person who just does good favors for us when we're in trouble and that's it. Otherwise, as long as you're nice to people, that's all that really matters. The third thing is the consumerist escapism. Then that should be obvious. The ethos in society pushing us to the so-called value of just vegging out and escaping through consumerism, through buying stuff, through shopping, and just being a good customer. All of these three things have become the dominant civic religion in society that minimizes any relationship with God and ultimately centers our experience around ourselves, where we become the center of the universe. That's what this is all about. So the companions of the Prophet to return to this story of Abyssinia, the companions of the Prophet understood very clearly that permission for them to go to Abyssinia did not erase the significant differences in beliefs and practices between them and the whole society of Abyssinia, a Christian society.
So let's imagine if instead of them being in a very strict Christian country, the companions had migrated to a place where the dominant religion was postmodernism, moralistic, therapeutic deism, and escapist consumerism. What would Jafar have said if he was in that society? Well, we know that he would not have changed the truth. He would not have bent the truth. He would have said what is true. Would he have accepted that Islam is his truth and that it's not the truth? Would he have reduced belief in God to a cultural identity marker, a generic belief that God's out there, we call upon when we need something, but ultimately is uninvolved in our lives? Would he have said that? Would he have gone along with the dominant ethos of the society in which he found himself? No, he would not have. But we have to take a look around ourselves. Take a look around. Pay attention to what Muslims are saying in popular discourse in North America. Can we honestly say, if we're critical with ourselves, can we honestly say that Muslim engagement with the broader society here is like Jafar's engagement with society in the time of the, the migration to Abyssinia? Are we engaging with society like Jafar or are we doing something else entirely? We have to take a look at those who elect to speak on behalf of the Muslims in North America. And often when you listen to them, you hear a message that is diametrically opposed to the message of Jafar Because for many, as Muslim minorities in this society, for many, the supreme good is whatever is good for PR, public relations. And as long as we look good, as long as we're seen as normal and ordinary, that's all that matters. Not what is objectively good in the sight of Allah. And the corollary of this is that the greatest evil is that we look bad, or we seem out of touch, or we seem uh, unlike the majority. These are things to consider, dear brothers and sisters. Our ultimate commitment as Muslims is pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ultimately. Everything is reduced to that. Seeking the rida of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this means that we have to know what is pleasing to Allah ta'ala and what is not pleasing to Allah ta'ala. And then, number two, we have to use that as our stable base for determining our engagement with others in society. Are we happy with any and all representation of us in society? Even if it comes at the cost of our own values and our own dignity? Dear brothers and sisters, we need representatives in the community who are more like Jafar radiallahu anhu and less like Ms. Marvel. We need representatives who represent truth. And this is the great divide. This is the great divide. And like it or not, we all have to pick a side. The side of Islam as just a part of our identity, or Islam as a rational and deliberate faith that we embrace with conviction. We have to choose sides. Islam as an identity handbag, or Islam as a lived reality that we strive for. We have to make a choice. Islam as a commitment to core beliefs about Allah and the unseen versus 
moralistic, therapeutic deism, postmodernism, and an Islam that is reduced to Salaamu Alaikum and Insha'Allah, and that's it. We have to make a choice, dear brothers and sisters. You have to be like Ja'far radiallahu anhu. Be like Ja'far or be like the Ghutha, as the Prophet said. Be like Ja'far or like the foam of the ocean that gets swept away in one or two generations. Be like Ja'far radiallahu anhu for whom Islam is a real and deliberate faith with conviction, with a moral code that is practiced with bravery and readiness to be different from others in society. Be like Ja'far radiallahu anhu, a Muslim who seeks what is good for Muslims and the rest of society, what is good for the preservation of the deen and moral values, and not just what is good for our limited material existence. Be like Ja'far radiallahu anhu, a Muslim who lives a life of purpose and preserves timeless values that ensure moral stability in society and well-being, not just for us, but well-being for everyone, dear brothers and sisters. As Muslims living as religious minorities, we have to be more like Ja'far. We have to know who we are. We have to know what our purpose is, and we have to know what is our higher calling and what that means for us as a religious minority in this landscape. May Allah make us more like Ja'far and give us thabat, give us firmness, give us purpose. Oh Allah, inspire us with a higher purpose in seeking your pleasure and connect us to those expressions of that higher purpose as believers, as muslimun, as mu'minun, as muhsinun, as seekers of your pleasure. Ya Arhamar Rahimin, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Oh Allah, give us that stability and that bravery to know our purpose and make us true and noble, worthy representatives of this deen of Al-Islam. Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fi al-akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin abdika wa rasulika al-nabiyya al-ummiyya wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallima tasliman kathira bi qadri azamati thatika fi kulli waqtin wahin subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa kudu ila salatikum ya alhamdulillah